0: I take from my text this morning the third verse of the 37th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. The Lord said to me, Mortal, can these bones live? I answered, O Lord God, you know. Please pray with me. Holy and most gracious God, as we gather here this morning, we ask one thing of you. Send your Holy Spirit among us that we can be your church in the world. Amen. Ever since 1962, the mainline churches of the, United Ch- of the United States have been shrinking. By mainline churches, we mean the United Church of Christ, the Disciples of Christ, the Presbyterian Church USA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the Episcopal Church, and the United Methodist Church. These denominations used to form the backbone of American Protestant religious life. They were the embodiments of the establishment. And every year for the past 55 years, they have been losing members. The hardest hit has been the Disciples of Christ, but the other denominations are not far behind. It is impossible for you to have been in churches for any period of time and not to have heard these statistics or to have seen their effects firsthand. I have heard about these statistics for as long as I can remember. They are the only reality of the church that I have known. And you know what? I really don't care. There I said it. I honestly couldn't care less. For decades, mainline churches have complained about the forces that are arrayed against them. Society is becoming more secular. Yes, without a doubt, society is becoming more secular. Modern life, with its long work hours, heavy burdens on parents to schedule everything for kids, social media and TV and smartphones, all these things have have left less time for church. Yep, it's all true. Others say, without the threat of hell, mainline churches have given away the most powerful motivator for church involvement. (laughs) Well, I don't actually agree with this statement. There certainly is some truth to it. People want churches that are fun and make them feel comfortable. Mainline churches demand too much of people. Ironically, others claim mainline churches don't demand enough. Others might say the preacher isn't funny. Uh, come on, I mean, I think that's I think a low blow. Uh, I could list these and probably a half dozen at least other reasons that have been cited for the decline of the mainline church. And there are legitimately lots of obstacles arrayed against us. And you know what? None of it really matters that much to me. In my experience, it's a whole lot simpler than that. You can walk into a space and figure out pretty quickly whether there is life there or not. I can't tell you how many conference annual meetings I went to in New England where the meeting consisted of nothing but collective hand-wringing about how things used to be. Or how many churches I've been to where the place felt dead, where people were disengaged from the message, where you could almost hear whispered the seven last words of a dying church, but we've always done things that way. (laughs) Is there a lot of death and decline in the mainline church these days? Yes, of course. It has been that way for my whole life, and yet, here I stand, still in this pulpit. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I thought that was the last word. I have zero interest in being a pallbearer for the church. Absolutely zero. I'm here, I do what I do, because I believe there is life, real, authentic life, in the church. How do we find that life? How do we make sure the church thrives? There is one key to the whole enterprise. We find it here in our reading from Ezekiel. The prophet Ezekiel prophesied during one of the bleakest times in the history of Israel. The Israelite leadership was in exile in Babylon in the 6th century B.C. All around Ezekiel, people were, decry- were decrying the decline of the faith. They had no homeland, no temple. There was no realistic hope of return to Jerusalem. People sat down by the waters of Babylon, and there they wept when they remembered Zion. And in the midst of that time, At the lowest point, when things couldn't seem any worse, Ezekiel heard a word from God. He had a vision. The Lord took Ezekiel by the hands and led him to a valley that was full of dry bones. His bones had no life in them. They weren't bodies freshly slain. They were the dried-out bones of the old Israel. Facing that bleak scene, looking at 55 years of mainline church decline, the Lord asked Ezekiel, mortal, Can these bones live? It's a question that God has asked again and again throughout Christian history. Mortal, can these bones live? It's a question we ask today on Pentecost, the birthday of the Church Universal, the day on which we celebrate the beginning of the Church 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. Mortal, these bones live. Five years ago, the religious writer Phyllis Tickle wrote a book entitled The Great Emergence, In that book, Tickle argued that roughly every 500 years, the church goes through a great housecleaning. Every 500 years, it's time to seek the church anew. It happened first after the fall of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had been the structure upon which the church had grown and thrived. The empire's cities and roads had allowed the Christian message to spread quickly. Even the emperors themselves had become Christian. But there, was also, but there were also major issues with the church. It had become corrupted by the power of Rome, and too often was used to justify distinctly unchristian behavior by the Romans. But just as the Roman Empire began to crumble, there was something new growing out of the old. A house cleaning. A new church emerged. Monasteries became the place where, a new, where this new type of Christianity, Christianity was found. They became the centers of piety and learning. They sent missionaries into the very barbarian tribes that had devastated the old Roman Empire. Because of this renewal, even in the bleakness of the Dark Ages, the church thrived. 500 years later, the the monasteries themselves had become places of corruption. The church dioceses had devolved into places for local nepotism. Once again, out of this decay, new things emerged. You had the mendicant orders, like the Franciscans and the Dominicans, who rejected the wealth of the monasteries and did their work among the people. The Pope in Rome launched reform movements that cut down on nepotism and called the local church to holier life. 500 years later came another housecleaning, the Reformation. It was once again a time of great change. The Reformation launched an incredible diversity of religious energy, creativity, and reform, both within the wide array of Protestant sects and also within the Roman Catholic Church itself. Throughout the history of the Church, each time the corruption of the Church pushed people away, each time the bones of the Church seemed dead and dry, a new thing, a new way of Church began to emerge. Tickle and others have argued that we are living in the beginning of another such housecleaning, another Reformation today. Many people call the 1950s the heyday of the mainline Church, but that period did not come without its own problems. Whenever the church becomes more cultural than Christian, it risks losing its voice. And indeed, in the face of the civil rights movement the Vietnam War, and the Vietnam War, many did feel that their church's response was too small or not true to the gospel. As a result, many who were concerned for social justice and moved by Jesus left the church. Others became so enamored with social justice for its own sake that they forgot about Jesus and personal transformation. Meanwhile, the growing evangelical movement turned its back on social justice and focused increasingly on cultural issues and fundamentalist theology. Today, too many mainline churches seem either outdated or ineffectual, and the evangelical movement seems to have left behind Jesus in its grasp for political power. But in the midst of these dry bones, There are the beginnings of what Philistical called the great emergence. Christians across denominational lines and across theologies are returning to the message and radical nature of Jesus. We see signs of this all around us. Contrary to what some may think, behind the headlines and the statistics, there are bold and compelling Christians all across the country. For the first time in decades, there were reports of the renewed strength and vitality of the so-called Christian left. The Reverend William Barber, who started the Moral Monday movement in North Carolina and who was one of the most moving preachers of our day, has begun the Poor People's Campaign, a national, faith-based effort to lobby those in power to advocate for the poor in our midst based on the message of Jesus. Just last week, the Poor People's Campaign held rallies all over the country, including one in Austin on Monday. The church is finding its voice. It's finding the gospel. Shane Claiborne, an evangelical church leader, wrote a book, The Irresistible Revolution, that has sold millions of copies. Claiborne talks of, talks of his own experience of seeking after Jesus and calling his fellow evangelicals out for their hypocrisy. Claiborne reached deep into Christian history and founded an an intentional monastery-like community in Philadelphia. He's one of the most sought-after Christian speakers in the country. Emily Scott, who graduated a year ahead of me at Yale Divinity School, founded a thriving dinner church in Brooklyn, New York. In one of the most secular bastions of the country, she found that people by the score were deeply interested in Jesus, in table fellowship, in serving others, and transforming their community. They were just looking for something authentic and something that looked beyond traditional churches. But this renewal is in traditional churches, too. In Secular Davis Square in Somerville, Massachusetts, Molly Basquette radically transformed the small UCC church she found there. They threw the doors of the church wide open. They talked unapologetically about Jesus and the power of his message. They had drag church, where drag queens led worship, and others were freely encouraged to cross-dress as a way to show the unconditional welcome of Jesus and to defy harmful binaries of gender stereotypes. Molly also instituted the most radical and moving public confessions that I have ever witnessed. In that liberal church, people get up and confess their sins, not in some nebulous, catch-all kind of way, but by telling their story, by saying where they went wrong and what they messed up in detail, and then by telling how God helped heal them and forgive them. This public confession frees people from shame and guilt, by allowing them to bring their whole selves to God and the community. This is powerful stuff. There are countless examples, other examples that I could add. These are strong witnesses to the enduring power of Jesus, even amidst our culture, even with our busy schedules, even with the bad reputation that Christianity has for many. In Ezekiel 37... What brings the dry bones back to life is the breath of God, the Ruach Elohim. The same breath of God that moved over the waters in creation and moves within us. It is God's breath, the Holy Spirit, that is the key element in church renewal. The Holy Spirit is not about some formula. Yes, there are certain best practices for churches, but there is not a one-size-fits-all solution. I have been in churches with smells and bells and high liturgy and felt the Holy Spirit present there. I've been in churches with praise bands where the Holy Spirit was present. I've been in churches that had organ music or bluegrass or medieval chants and African drums. They have all created spaces for the Holy Spirit. Because that is what we need. That's what gave life to the church on that first Pentecost. And that's what will continue to give life to this church. So, Pentecostal Christians, how do we do it? How do we create space for the Holy Spirit in our midst to breathe life to those dry bones? We have to earnestly try to follow Jesus. And I'm not talking about a domesticated Jesus that makes us feel comfortable and doesn't call us out when we're wrong. I mean the Jesus who put his life on the line for compassion. I mean the Jesus who was out in the streets with the people. I mean the Jesus who told truth about corruption and injustice. I mean the Jesus who turned over tables. I mean the Jesus who showed us that power is made perfect in weakness, not domination. But we don't only have to follow Jesus, we also have to follow God. That means actively looking for God in our lives, in our daily lives, in the grocery store, in school, in your places of work, in your home, even in those places where you think God might not be present. That means believing that there is more to this world than just the stuff we see. That means prioritizing God in our lives over TV shows and time with our friends and sporting events for kids. That means giving thanks and praising God, worshiping God and not worshiping the idols that society gives us to worship. Praise God with our voices and our singing. Praise God with our meditations and prayers. Praise God with our loving actions and serving others. Let everything that breathes praise the Lord, praise the Lord. Being a Christian is not easy. You think it should be easy, then that's the first sign that it's not Christianity. Those dry bones are going to live. If the Ruach Elohim, if the breath of God, is going to show up, you have to know that being a Christian is serious business and that that business is worth all the investment that we can make. You know what? church of the past dies. I say Good riddance. If it doesn't have the Spirit in it, then it deserves to die, because it's not doing anything worthwhile. But for the church to live, those dry bones to take on sinews and life, for the church to be the true church, all of us, all of us here need to find the Holy Spirit. We need that Holy Spirit with us. I'll be there for that. I'm signing up for that. I want you all to sign up with that with me.